Welcome to Home Health 360, a podcast presented by Aliacare. I'm your host, Jeff Howell, and this is the show about learning from the best in home health care from around the globe. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Home Health 360, where we speak with home care and home health leaders from across the globe. Today, we have Denise Tripati, who is the vice president of the Lixa Shared Service of Personal Touch Home Care in New York. She has a strong program and project management background in home care, elder care, health care, health care management, and long-term care, and has been at Personal Touch in New York for 20 years. Denise, thank you for being on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me, Jeff. Thank you so much. So, Denise, we haven't had a chance to speak before, but I um, just randomly reached out to you about your LinkedIn post when you guys acquired Bronx uh, Community Home Care, also known as Neighbors Home Care. And so that transaction was completed early April. And uh, so now I think Personal Touch has, uh, according to the press release, about 4,500 caregivers and um, about 3,600 clients in New York City, Long Island, and uh, Westchester. And the move places you folks among the largest licensed uh, service agencies, or what we call LICSAs. And I think that's only a New York term. I haven't seen it in any other. It is, Jeff. It is. Got it. We like to be different. <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, tell us a little bit more about Personal Touch and your time at the company. I've been with Personal Touch for um, 22 years. Um, I like to tell the joke I started when I was five, but like that's an old joke, so I won't even say it. Um, Personal Touch has been in business since 1974. It was originally owned by the Glaubach and Marks family. That's how it was started. Dr. Glaubach will tell the story of the first weekend they were in business. We had three patients. Um, two passed away the very first weekend. So his story is, look, we lost two-thirds of our business the first weekend we were in business, and here we are, we're still here, so that we persevere. Um, as we stand now, the company is still owned, a third is owned by the Glaubach family, a third is owned by the Marks family, and a third is owned by um, us, the employees. So we have an ESOP, which is an employee stock option plan. So that's great. Um, the company began in New York with the offices that I own, with the Lixa, the licensed services. Um, and through that, we've kind of grown. We we grew and then consolidated a little bit. Um, we were in New Hampshire, Massachusetts, uh, New Jersey, Ohio, Kentucky, Virginia, West Virginia. We also had a very small early intervention program in New York. Uh, we divested of early intervention last year, um, and we've closed some of the offices. Uh, so today, we exist in, in New York um, and in uh, Virginia, West Virginia, Kentucky, and Ohio. Um, we have two two types of business. Um, we have my business, which is the Lixa, or people call it unskilled. I hate that term, unskilled. Uh, so we'll just call it personal care services. Um, and then we have skilled services, which is really nursing, um, nursing care. So that office exists also in New York as well. Mm -hmm. um, part of our history, part of our fabric is in 2015, the company applied for and received approval from the state to start a Medicaid-managed long-term care company. So we were the parent organization to Integra, uh, which is a Medicaid-managed long-term care. Uh, Integra grew in seven years to become the second largest MLTC in New York State. 
Um, mm-hmm. And we're happy to report that Anthem Health just acquired that insurance company from us earlier this year, um, about a month or so ago. So um, that's where we are with Personal Touch. The other line of business that we have in New York is our CDPAP, which is our Consumer Directed Assistance Program. And CDPAP is uh, is probably the largest self-directed care program in all the United States, right? Yes, indeed it is. Yes. And, uh, and I think it goes by different names in different states, but some states you don't hear anything about it at all. And But in New York, you hear CDPAP all the time. Yeah, I think a lot of it is based on, on need and just the demographics of where you are. Um, I mean, I remember when CDPAP was in its infancy um, early in the 90s. And it was really geared, geared towards uh, a group of individuals that had caregivers and they kind of wanted their freedom. They wanted to be able to say who cared for them and not only that, what the services were that were provided to them. So I think now the mindset is, is well, CDPAP, it's family members caring for family members. It's so much more mm-hmm. than that. Um, the caregivers are able to operate outside of what we call a scope of practice. So say, for example, if you're... Um, a young person, a young person in their 30s, maybe disabled, you want your caregiver maybe to go with you to Walmart or you maybe want your caregiver to go with you to to the local bar, right? Just because you can't get around. Um, That would not be within the scope of practice of a a personal care aid would be to go go to Walmart with you or go to the local bar. But in the CDPAP program, they are permitted to do that. Um, On the flip side, and they're also able to do things like inject um, insulin, if the uh, consumer actually directs that personal assistant to do so. So that's a, a little bit quick, down and dirty difference between CDPAP and what I run, which is the personal care services. Sure. So how many? How big would your CDPAP program be? Uh, we have about 725 um, recipients. Um, and probably I'm going to say somewhere in the vicinity of maybe 12 to 1400 um, personal assistance. That seems like a big program. Yeah, it's it's fairly large. We've only been around uh, since 2016, so we grew pretty quickly. Uh, we saw a lot of growth in the CDPAP arena around that time uh, with the Medicaid redesign team. So it's not unusual that the CDPAP lines of business grew um, exponentially during that time. Okay, yeah. I had never put that into context uh, before. Uh, so speaking of which, there's still a moratorium on Medicaid agencies in New York. And to my knowledge, it's just New York and Florida um, that actually have moratoriums. Can you provide us a bit more background? Um, when did this come into place originally? So the state's gone two rounds with it, right? In order to understand where we are now, you have to know where we've been. So let me take you back a little bit. Um, the, the moratorium was lifted in 2010. Prior to 2010, it's much the way everything is existing now. There was a shortage of caregivers in the late 90s. We didn't have enough care to be caregivers around. Uh, the wages were not really uh, formalized. They were not standardized. So the state said, well, we're going to lift this moratorium and we're going to get more Lixis. That, that was the state's solution to the problem. Prior to the moratorium, there were only 920 licenses that were out there. Once the moratorium was lifted, um, by 2012, it had increased to 1,400. Today, we have almost 1,500 licenses in New York State. So now the state says, well, oh my goodness, yeah, that helped during that time period, but 
Now we have too many Lexus, a lot of competition, a lot of caregivers. It's the same labor pool that's just kind of being mm-hmm. spread across 14, 1500 Lexus. Um, and that was not what the, the state had intended. They wanted to get more caregivers into the industry. I don't think they were really very successful in doing that. Um, a lot of that also transpired uh, around the time of 2011 with the Medicaid redesign team. Fee-for-service Medicaid was eliminated, um, and it allowed, prior to the Medicaid redesign team, the Lixa really couldn't survive in New York unless you had a contract with your local Department of Social Services or what we called HRA, Human Resources Association. Once the Medicaid redesign team came out, they eliminated HRA, they eliminated fee-for-service Medicaid and said, okay, Lixis, now you have to deal with insurance companies like Integra, like Aetna, like HealthFirst, uh, companies that we had never, ever had to deal with. So there was a scramble. Everyone said, hey, this is great. I can now get a license. I don't need to have my HRA contract, my fee-for-service Medicaid contract. I can go out there and just contract with Integra and I'll survive. It'll be a lucrative business. So that's where we saw such an influx and more applications of of licenses come around was right around that same time with um, the Medicaid redesign team. I know that's a whole lot of information, a lot of complexities to that, but I think that answers your question. Yeah. So I only picked up the first time. You said it was two rounds and it was lifted in 2010. Right. And then they put and then they put it in place again in 2020. That's why there was two rounds, right? So there was a moratorium. They lifted it in 2010. They had it for 10 years. It was it yeah. was the Wild West and now they've put it back again. Got it. Okay. My opinion is that the state wants consolidation. They're forcing consolidation in the market. They're limiting the amount of, of, of licenses. They're also pushing for the LICSA RFO right now. Um, they're looking for consolidation. I think the state, what they want is they want consolidation with Medicaid managed long-term care companies and LICSAs. That's clear. It's abundantly clear that's what they want. So they're going to drive that consolidation in the market. Makes sense. And to your point, you know, it's like when you go get three uh, bids on your roof, right? From three from three roofing companies, they're probably going to use the same trades to do the actual shingle work, right? <laughs> right. And so, uh, you know, the goal would really be have a fewer number of really well-run agencies that um, can compete and survive. And, you know, it's, it's a delicate balance of not having enough and then having too many. And that doesn't work either. Right. And they want the state wants compliant licensed home care agencies, folks that are going to follow the rules, be in compliance with wage parity, be in compliance with, with a number of different things. And so I think that, again, is what the state's goal is. And also, obviously, to save money. Right. They they wanted the reason for the creation of the Medicaid redesign team was there was an exorbitant amount of money being spent in Medicaid dollars um, in home care. About 58 percent of the money was being spent actually in Brooklyn, in one particular borough. And the state said at that time, um, Governor Cuomo was the attorney general. And he said, look, there's something going on. There's something not right here. So we wanted to come back, reevaluate, make sure there wasn't any fraud and abuse. That's why we came up with the Medicaid redesign and Medicaid matters long-term care companies. And I think now that what we're still seeing is the tailwinds of that um, that was the goal then, but I don't know that the state was as, as successful as they had wanted it to be. So again, that's why I think they're forcing this consolidation, 
I'm going to get rid of these smaller agencies, maybe agencies that are not as compliant. They're maybe, I hate to even say it might be involved in fraud, abuse, those kinds of things. I think that's the goal of, of the state is to eliminate that. Yeah, sure. So with your acquisition of Bronx Community Home Care, uh, did the moratorium play a role in, in uh, you know, speed bump in your way to acquiring or how does that work? It did not because we did exactly what the state wanted us to do. So Bronx Community held the license to operate in the five boroughs in Westchester. Personal Touch has licenses to operate in that same space. So they will close that license out. So there's one less license after we acquired neighbors. So we helped. You're doing, you're doing your part. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. And uh, I, I presume you guys are still in expansion mode and uh, you're looking at any other strategic acquisitions. Um, like growth by acquisition, I would imagine, is a strong way for you to keep things rolling in New York. In fact, it is, uh, especially again in this market, right? Um, it's been tough. It's been very tough for us to grow organically because there's so many, a lot of competition, not only with all those licks, but the CDPAP programs we talked about earlier. There's been a lot of um, competition with us, not only within our business, but also within other industries. Uh, you know, when they level set the, the minimum wage in New York to be $15 an hour, they level set that wage with Home Depot and Walmart and food service industry and then anywhere else. So now, in addition to personal touch competing with 1,500 Lixes, we were competing with 900. Now we're competing with 1,500. We're also competing with other industries. And so that's not just personal touch. That's the industry. And so they kind of sucked a little bit of our caregiver, our labor pool. So it's been difficult for us to grow. So again, I think that um, acquisition is certainly um, one of our strategies for growth. Uh, we've established a really good, efficient model where we can do business in a much more efficient way through technology. And that is that I think that's where it's at. I don't think we're the only ones that are doing that either. So uh, speaking of the uh, the minimum wage, um, you know, there was just that increase, but not a corresponding bump to the uh, reimbursements as well. Right. So we're thrilled that the caregivers are getting more money. Uh, that's I think that's an amazing thing. The, the work that the care, caregivers do, they're, they are undervalued. I think home care workers just as a whole are undervalued, but that's just me. Um, so for them to get, they'll get an extra $2 an hour starting on October 1st of this year and then another dollar an hour starting um, October of 2023. So we're thrilled about that. However, the agencies... Um, we, there's been little to no discussion about the reimbursement rate. I believe that the state will come through with some money. Um, if Again, I take you back to the late 90s when we had a caregiver shortage. Um, the state put into place what was called uh, recruitment and retention money. So added on to our fee-for-service Medicaid rate, um, the state gave us, I think it was like 3 or $4 more an hour, and that money had to go directly to the caregivers. So we couldn't use it as profit, no bonuses, nothing like that. We had to clearly show the state this went directly to the caregivers. So I'm thinking, I'm hoping that that's something that the state is going to come back with and that money will be funneled through uh, the contracts with the Medicaid managed long-term care companies. I just don't think they know yet. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, there's um, Medicaid is more of a volume play, not a margin play. So if there's a mandatory, uh, you know, Im- improvement, which is great for the caregivers, there's uh, there's not a lot of meat on the bone to squeeze out. Um, you know, the money has to be there, right? So right. <laughs> It's like you've done this before, Jeff. That's exactly right. It's always been a game of volume. It's a, it's a penny margin business and always been a game of volume. Yeah, for sure. Well, speaking of money, it actually just occurred to me in real time here. If a company can use FMAP funding for acquisitions, I'm wondering, because uh, I've read some FMAP documents and it talks about, you know, um, paying you know people more and investing into technology and so forth. But I've actually, I don't, I think it might be silent on whether you can actually do that to go help fund a new acquisition. Do you know the answer to that? Uh, I don't believe it can. Um, the money is, is really earmarked towards recruitment, retention, technology, um, education, and value-based payment programs. That, that is clear what the, what the state wanted us to do with it. Yeah. Do you, uh, what are you seeing out there in terms of how agencies are applying these dollars? I think you're going to see a, a garden variety. I think there are those agencies that are organized. We're organized. We are, we are union represented um, by 1199 SEIU. So the union, of course, is going to advocate for the caregivers. Um, and really, the bulk of that money, in my opinion, should be spent on recruitment and retention. We're experiencing a shortage. That's where we need to put that money. Um, there is a huge bulk of FMAP money that's supposed to come in a second wave. Um, I believe that's going to be the funding for that two to three dollars an hour rate increase. We're going to see that happen. That's where I think that money's going to be funneled. Oh, I see. You've heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope it sticks. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you're going to help uh, influence the the trend. <laughs> right, right. So you've talked a lot about how you know Medicaid has evolved and changed over the years. This is the first time I've ever heard of. Fifty-eight percent of the money being spent in one borough—that sounds uh, unbelievable. Uh, not only that it happened, but that you know we we're able to sort of uh, track that down and say, "Hey, we need some reform here to to try to address these things." Any predictions on? Uh, you know, I know that. So most people I speak to, they all say that their state has the most complicated uh, Medicaid system, but I think New York actually. Uh, genuinely takes the cake on that. Just curious if you um, have any predictions on how things may change moving forward with uh, Medicaid in New York. I think that um, Medicaid in New York, we do have to save money. Uh, I think that we've, I think what we've done is we've kind of swung the pendulum the other way. Um, We went to a very liberal, uh, from a very liberal environment where everything was for us, it was volume. It was long hours. Patients were getting what we refer to in the industry as two by twelves, right? So it's round the clock care, uh, and and I don't believe that was appropriate, right? Because if you were to receive round the clock care, two by twelve, maybe there's another option for you. I think what happened now, COVID. Okay, we can talk a little bit about that, where we have folks that are working from home that are staying home. Um, so I think you're going to see. Some people actually maybe care for their their parents or their family members um, and not take Medicaid dollars. That's one thing I think you might see. And then the pendulum has to swing the other way in a way that 
Well, the MLTCs want very, very low utilization. So we went from 2x12s to 7x2. Somewhere in the middle is the sweet spot. These patients, you know, if you look at industries throughout, you know, from the 1960s or, or prior to that to now, it's always been about the baby, baby boomers, right? When the baby boomers were children, the toy industry boomed. When the baby boomers turned 16, 17 years old, the car industry boomed, right? So now you're seeing another boom with healthcare, home care. These people want to stay home. That's where they're safe. So Medicaid, I think, has to come back and say, really take a look at this and say, hey, what's the best way, the most efficient way for for patients to stay home? I think you're going to see some technology come into play. I think you're going to see risk share come into play with value-based. I think value-based is a huge component right now, um, what we will see come about with our Medicaid. We see that already happening on the federal level with Medicare. So I think Medicaid, typically what happens in our industry, you see it happen first with Medicare, and then it'll trickle down to Medicaid. New York usually gets hold of it and complicates it a little bit, but somewhere in there, it'll, it'll come out <laughs> as, a, as a value right. base. So th- that's where I see us moving. Yeah. Well, it's almost like you can see what my questions are here, because that was where I was going next, <laughs> is that, um, yeah, so you guys have a chaw as well, right? I'm assuming you guys are like half licks a half chaw. And for the for the listeners, chaw is the New York uh, specific acronym for uh, certified uh, Medicare agency. And um, the rough number that I hear is about a third of agencies actually don't really even track any outcomes today. And so I was curious your thoughts on. Um, you know, you said that I love how you said, you know, it, it typically the, the litmus test is the Medicare space and then and then it moves into the Medicaid space. Um, are you guys doing any tracking of outcomes and predictive analytics? And I'm curious if you're also looking into technology to predict uh, caregiver turnover and shortages and, and whatnot. So. The industry as a standard, I think, is sort of lacking in any kind of ability to track outcomes. I think that we look at the state and say, hey, New York, what do you want to track? And New York looks to us and says, well, what do you want to track? So I think there's a, there's a conflict there. Um, I think the first thing that we should track is we should take a look at falls and how we can avoid falls. That's, that's one piece. Um, and I think we have the ability to utilize technology. I think one of the biggest things that we need to look at is the social aspect of home care. I think in general, Mm -hmm. we lose that piece, right? I think what's important to people and our outcomes is even maybe a patient's mental and emotional well-being, right? So why can't caregivers, like a hybrid between CDPAP and, and Lixa, why can't caregivers go out to a patient's home and assist the patient in, I don't know, maybe cooking a meal or maybe gardening or, or listening to music together or, or a podcast with Jeff Howell. Why can't they do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Medicaid doesn't pay for that, but I think that's enrichment in the patient's life. And I think that's going to keep a patient home safe and keep their faculty. So they're not going to fall. They're not going to injure themselves. So I think we have to take a look at the patients more holistically. That's one thing. Um, and I think from a value-based perspective, there has to be a risk share, right? Because you always have those outliers. You have those patients that are on what I'll call the low end that they can kind of stay home and be more self-directing. 
maybe they don't need a lot of services. And then you have the patient that really does need two by 12s or live in services. So the MLTCs have to get the, the agencies to do some risk share. And yes, on a child level, on a Medicare level, we are tracking outcomes. I think agencies have the ability to do that. It's easier, I think, in the Medicare world to track those outcomes because it's so clinically driven. The child world is so clinically driven. We're not. The second part of your question was technology to track caregiver turnover. Yes, I think you're definitely going to see that. We're already doing that. Um, we're starting to understand um, the needs of the caregiver. Right now, we will be um, engaging the remainder of the year um, with our caregivers uh, to do a full-fledged survey with them, some focus groups. We want to understand, why did you become a caregiver? Why did you choose personal touch? Um, why are you still here? Why haven't you gone somewhere else? So those kinds of questions. I think we also need to understand um, from a customer service perspective um, in, in how to properly engage with our caregivers. They are our product. Without them, we don't have a job. So we have to create an environment where um, we're able to give back to them. Other than that, you're going to be left with Medicaid recipients providing care for Medicaid recipients, right? And that's, it's not going to work. Yeah, yeah. Going back to what you said about the social determinants of health, right? So Medicare Advantage was really the big signal that, uh, hey, maybe upstream, the very first thing we should worry to be worried about is this uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs that, you know, after you have food and shelter, you seek to have companionship and community and self-esteem. And, it, and if when you have those things, your health will be in much better shape. Absolutely. And didn't didn't COVID teach us that among a million other things? Right. Yeah. That, yeah. that people that when they were isolated, um, you know, I have parents, they're 84 years old. They live very close to us. Before COVID, my dad was working. He's now he's retired. But I can definitely see a change in, in, in them and in how they engage with us. It, yeah, loneliness is a, is a huge, a huge, huge player. You know, it's not an easy thing for you to think about aging and what does, you know, really what comes after aging, right? Is, is hospitalization, is death, is nursing home. So it's scary. And I think that we have to, as, as caregivers and as providers, right, we have to think about that. Patient isn't just skin and bones. There's a lot of other factors that are go into that. Well, this uh, pandemic has taught me to be a lot more grateful as well with, uh, you know, the way that it's inf influenced everyone's life, uh, you know, so tremendously over the last uh, two years. I will, uh, we're almost bumping up against time, but I'll get you out of here on this last question, Denise. Give us a reason to be optimistic about care in the place where clients call home. So here's what I'll tell you. Home care has been here for years and years and years. It's been here since the turn of the century, right? VNSNY, um, also Metropolitan Jewish. Um, there are pioneers. We're here. We're not going anywhere. People are always going to be home. We know COVID taught us that too. Home is the safest place to be. So um, I think this bump in, in rate increase to our caregivers, much needed, is very, very optimistic for us. Hopefully, we'll be able to get an infusion of, of new caregivers that are coming in that will be able to carry on our strong tradition of quality caregiving. 
Well, it's been amazing. I wrote down so many notes here of the new things that I learned, and I will steal home is the safest place to be. I might refer, I might give you credit for the first time or two, but then I'll, I'll keep it as my own. If you use it three times, (laughs) Jeff, it's yours. That's how it goes. (laughs) Well, it was great to have you, Denise. Uh, I really enjoyed this session and uh, hope to have you on again some other time in the future. Sure. Thanks so much. Home Health 360 is presented by Liacare. First off, I want to thank our amazing guests and listeners. To get more episodes, you can go to aliacare.com forward slash home health 360. That's spelled home health 360 or search home health 360 on any of your favorite podcasting platforms. The easiest way to stay up to date on our new shows is to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We also have a newsletter you can sign up for on aliacare.com forward slash homehealth360 to get alerts for new shows and more valuable content from Aliacare right into your inbox. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.